and welcome to Not Safe Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Georgia. And joining us today from South Africa is Michaela. Michaela, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to have you here. So, Michaela, you're currently doing your PhD with the University of Manchester, but you are based over in, did you say Cape Town? Cape Town, yeah. It's a bit of a weird situation, especially with COVID, because I'm originally from Cape Town. The collection I'm currently working with is situated in Cape Town, but I'm studying through the University of Manchester. So I was in Manchester until March of 2020, when the first kind of waves of lockdown were starting to hit. And pretty much what happened was I got bombarded by SMSs and emails from my family members who said, get your butt back home (laughs) before the country closes its borders. So it was a bit of a, a swift escape, but I've been back here in Cape Town ever since. So hopefully I will be seeing Manchester again fairly soon. So at that point in March 2020, how far into your PhD were you? I had only started in September of 2019. So it was pretty much, I guess one could say the timing was fairly fortunate in that I had intended to come back to South Africa in April to do the kind of archival research that I had to do here locally. So it kind of sped things up a little bit. It kind of worked. It kind of fell into place for me. But at the same time, I haven't really been able to see my peers. I haven't really been able to kind of engage in like one-on-one face-to-face conversations with people who are having similar experiences to me. And I mean, I'm enjoying, you know, the fact that I can do this with you guys because we've got, you know, Zoom. It's become such a normal part of uh, academia during COVID. But it is strange. There are so many things that we can't really read in one another if all we have is the face and the voice. But yeah, so I hadn't even been doing my PhD for a year and then this happened. So I still feel a little bit fresh and green. And could you tell us a little bit about your project and about the collection that you're working with? So I am actually doing research into the photographic collection and it was uh, created at the University of Cape Town and it is associated with their medical school and its various teaching hospitals that are in the Cape Town area and the majority of the photographs are clinical photographs so they are photographs of patients. They date roughly uh, the majority of them between 1920 and 1970-ish but there are a couple of outliers that predate that for reasons I can get into, if you like. The the collection was completely disorganized. It was kind of forgotten and abandoned by the surgery department that had originally kind of created it, used it, housed it. And I think somewhere between the move from one building to another and with different kind of interests within medical education, they kind of just vanished from awareness. And so when they arrived here, where I'm sitting today at the Pathology Learning Centre, they were in these big cardboard boxes. And I mean, I can show you one that it's just like this completely loose card. So they're smaller than A4 and they were kind of scattered in these huge boxes, no discernible order, no paperwork to describe what this stuff was or how it had been used. So my project pretty much was kind of this combination of practically going about archiving this collection. So 
going through all of the cards, which there are over 5,000 of them, making sense of what there is, cataloging them, organizing them in a way that allows for sense to be made of their basically their origins, but also how they were used as a teaching collection for medical students. So it's, it's kind of been this interesting journey of this very practical dimension of actually archiving the material. And then also this kind of theory-heavy, contextualizing process of how do you figure out where this stuff came from? How do you figure out who made it? How do you figure out how it was used? And also, how do you make sense of this kind of material today, considering that these are clinical images and, you know, considering data protection and considering questions about heritage and so on that are kind of really global issues at the moment. It's this weird kind of mishmash of basically the history of medicine, photography theory, and this kind of archival historical engagement. So yeah, so it's it's a bit messy right now, right? I'm in the second year of my PhD, so I'm kind of like, hmm, I've got all the stuff, <laughs> all these thoughts, what to do? <laughs> This is the year where you really find out what your PhD is. Second year is an exciting year. Lots of good stuff happens in second year. <laughs> That's good to hear. I do actually want to say, because I think that it's going to be possible for people to hear it on the recording, but Michaela is actually calling into our podcast Zoom right now from a room that is, so it's got all these steel shelves on the walls, mm. and then you can just see on all the steel shelves all these like jars and stuff. Michaela is calling from like a, <laughs> like a mad scientist lab. <laughs> it's amazing. The building I'm in right now is actually the old mortuary block. So there's like really bizarre kind of aspects to the building. Like most of the rooms have gutters along the wall. For blood? Yes. Yes. So that it can drain bodily fluids. And it's actually still a functioning mortuary. So there is a dissecting room. So, you know, every now and again, it becomes an interesting space to work. <laughs> But yeah, so so it's great right now, right? Because I'm in summer and it's like 32 degrees outside. And so it's lovely and cool, these high ceilings and okay, bodily organs around. But, you know, other than the bodily organs, it's, it's high ceilings. It's cool. It's lovely. In winter, it's like a refrigerator. It is so cold. So because, of course, it's supposed to keep dead bodies relatively fresh. So that is its job. And it seems to be very good at doing that, keeping me pretty fresh, too. So I think that's got to be the coolest place a guest has ever called in from, both literally and sort of metaphorically. <laughs> that's a very good point, yeah. <laughs> One of the questions I wanted to ask was if your project started with basically disorganized boxes of photographs with uh, mm. ranging an at least a 50 year kind of time period and presumably covering, if not a lot of different subjects, then a lot of different conditions and things. How did you start thinking about archiving and organizing those? Big question, because it was also quite a few years in the making. So the collection that I'm working with actually has two different parts. The one is this totally disorganized content, and the other is actually quite organized and arranged. It's filed, so the cards actually have those kind of very typical two holes punched in the side, and they can be kind of flipped through. And the files are actually annotated with either a kind of pathological condition, so for instance, there will be a file on that says tuberculosis, 
or they are categorized according to a body part. So there's, for instance, a file that says head and neck, or there'll be a, a file that says breast and so on. So there's this interesting kind of conversation happening between these organized cards and these disorganized cards. And the question of, like, with the organized ones, you can see what they were used for, right? So they were clearly used for clinical purposes. They were, they were used to teach how do you identify these diseases. So if we have tuberculosis, here are photographs that give you a broad demonstration of local cases of how this disease appears in the human body. Or, for instance, one of the big kind of diagnostic mysteries from what I've heard is something called swellings of the neck. So certain areas of the neck being swollen, there can be various reasons for that. And so, for instance, that could be a diagnostic conundrum. So to have various photographs demonstrating um, swellings of the neck as an example, and to be like, okay, students run differential diagnosis on, you know, if you have a patient who looks like this, what could it be? So it's very overt with the wild cards that that's what the material was for. And I was very fortunate that I stumbled upon kind of the pathology learning center and their collections while I was doing my master's. And South Africa master's is a little bit different than in the UK from what I've gathered, because a master's here is usually a research master's that can extend anywhere from two years to three years. So it's quite a long process. There often isn't any coursework. And so in the first year of my master's, I was introduced to the Pathology Learning Center by a lecturer in my former department. And I was hunting for a topic. I was looking for something to write about. I have a visual arts, visual culture studies background. And so I was interested in the visual language of medicine. And so obviously when they said, oh, we've got all these photographs, I was like, ha ha, this sounds like a potential project for my master's research. And that was in 2014. And so I pretty much for the last, what are we now, 2021. So it's been seven years of me kind of being aware of the collection and wanting to kind of engage beyond the research that my master's did. And when Dr. Jane Yates, who is the curator of this museum, when she said, hey, you know those filed cards that you did for your master's? We've just got all these new boxes delivered. Are you interested? I was like, cool, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And basically for about two years, I kind of sat on this material. I didn't think about doing a PhD. We were kind of discussing what do we do with these photographs? I was kind of the only person who knew anything about the history of the collection through my work with the wild cards. And so it was just this kind of weird space of being pulled back and kind of with Jane thinking about what can we do. And so I was like, well, if I do a PhD, maybe I can build in organizing the stuff as part of my research practice. So like I said, I come from an arts background. And so the idea of doing practice-based research is fairly common, especially in the last like 10 years or so, it, it's become more common. And so I thought, well, can't I build in the kind of practical management and handling and sorting as a kind of methodological tool for my 
actual dissertation. And so I started kind of reading up about archival methods and various kind of material studies approaches. So kind of drawing on the disciplines of art history, which I was very familiar with, but also archaeology and thinking about ways in which to treat something that is seen as a visual entity, so a photograph, and treat it as a physical object. And so the kind of way in which I started to conceptualize this, which ended up being my proposal for my PhD, was this kind of practice-based approach that would seek to trace the kind of background, history, use, etc., through the cards themselves. So take them as a kind of first point of departure. And that, in my mind, would allow me to both do this kind of very practical, hopefully useful work of taking something that no one could really access or deal with and making it workable, accessible in some respect. And then I'd also be able to kind of delve into various things that might spark interest. Maybe there's a particular photograph or a particular kind of disease or a particular kind of form of representation that I thought I could then take further. And so basically between, I think it was June of last year until November, December, that practical aspect, that kind of delving into the collection and trying to organize it and catalog it, etc. That's what I did. So it's been done. All 5,000 plus cards have been catalogued and organized, etc. And so now I'm kind of sitting here with all this data, all this kind of information. And now it's like exactly that thing, that second year thing of, so what now? <laughs> what is going to happen with all of this stuff, all of this information that I've now spent months kind of collecting and making sense of? And so that's where I'm at right now. So that is how, Georgia, your question is a little bit like, yeah, how? I don't know. <laughs> I don't quite know. No, it totally did. And it's so fascinating. So me and Anna are both historians and generally will use archives that someone else has archived. Although I will also quite often use people's sort of personal collections, which don't have any sort of rationale behind them. Usually they'll be like a box in a bottom of a drawer somewhere. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's very exciting to me to think about doing the cataloguing, you know, making the decisions, thinking about... Because as you say, with the filed pictures, there was a reason why they were put together. Someone was like, oh, we need a binder on the head and neck, or we need a binder on tuberculosis. When you've got a box of things that... How did you end up thinking about it? Did you think about diseases? Or did you think about dates? Or Yeah, that was a really difficult I, I kind of for weeks broke my head about how do I impose order on something that is chaotic and I did a lot of reading and of course if you look at literature that critically engages what an archive is right so Alan Sekula and Joan Schwartz and Terry Cook various other amazing authors who kind of look at what is an archive and engage the question of, you know, who are archivists who make these decisions? And that was something that was bothering me the whole time I was working with the collection. Who am I to make decisions about how these cards are going to be organized, about how they're being catalogued, about what details are being transcribed? And I wonder whether those kinds of questions rack experienced archivists like whether they kind of haunt experienced archivists as well because the power dynamics 
in terms of organizing and creating categories and forcing objects and documents into those categories is very real. And it automatically frames, right, those decisions always frame how people in the future look at and engage the collection. So it's like a huge weight. So what I did was because, and this is also actually part of my motivation for looking at this disorganized stuff and why I thought there was some real potential here, was that we already have this filed portion that is organized according to clinical needs, right? So that's the materials created for clinical needs. In the filed section, they were organized to meet those needs as well. And the question then becomes, so we would never ever think about reorganizing that, right? Because there's historical value just in knowing that someone else, someone who had a very particular set of intentions, organized those photographs in that way. So it also forced me to think about, so who is the material that I'm archiving now? Who is going to be accessing it? And whose needs do I have to take into consideration? And really my idea was that it would be historians that would be interested in the material. It's not particularly useful right now for clinical education anymore. From what I gather from kind of tracing uh, diagnostic imaging over the decades, basically in the 1980s, clinical photographs kind of fell out of fashion, I almost want to say. There was much more interest in what's happening underneath the skin. So if you think about x-rays, obviously, which has been around for ages, but x-rays are still a fundamental part of clinical imaging and medical education. But things like ultrasound, things like moving from the kind of gross morphology of the body, so the, the kind of big signs and big symptoms down to the kind of microscopic looking at genes. You know, if we just think where medical research and kind of the identification of illness or of disease in the body has gone, it's kind of drifted quite far from these photographs of people with these very kind of uh, conspicuous symptoms on the surfaces of their bodies. So it's not particularly useful for clinical education. So then what is it useful for, right? That would be, you know, why even keep the stuff, except if it has some kind of inherent artifactual value. And so for me, it's an interesting kind of glimpse into the history of the University of Cape Town's medical school as a kind of institution. But it's also an interesting kind of snapshot, excuse the horrible photographic pun, of who was going through these hospitals. And because I'm visual culture theory person, it's also interesting to see how different bodies are represented, especially over the kind of course of the decades. Because this is such a broad ranging collection, it really offers a glimpse of how medical photographic practices changed from the earliest photographs to the latest. And you can see, for instance, an element of professionalization because there's ever more standardized practices being implemented. The early photographs are taken outside. They're quite haphazard. The focal range is often all kind of messed up. Um, The pathology that's supposed to be the point of interest kind of isn't really clear and can't easily be deciphered. Often patients are wearing their own clothes. They are clearly outpatients rather than inpatients. And as the kind of decades progress, you see that 
you know, these photographs are taken at the same height all the time. Oh, it looks like a tripod must have been used because whenever photographs of the feet are taken, you can kind of see the angle of the camera shifted downwards. You can see a studio backing in that it's always the same kind of backdrop or the same odd kind of aspects, like odd little miscellaneous kind of entities coming in. Patients start to wear clearly hospital-issued gowns and clothes and so on. So there's a lot of kind of information across the decades. And so because of that, I thought that if one is doing historical research, that the best way to kind of physically arrange the material was chronologically. That if you want to see how did the material emerge from this institution, where are the parallels, where are the differences, to kind of see these flows and shifts, that that would be the ideal way to do it. I've only done a very rough kind of description of the material, and in those descriptions, I've added things like pathology or body part that I drew from the logic of the filed collection. So I use the filed collection as a kind of point of departure for that terminology, but in terms of the actual kind of organization itself, I thought the least manipulative and the least kind of imposing from my point of view would be to basically say, this is the sequence in which this material was made. So that's what I decided. And that's kind of what I've stuck with. And it's, I guess it's also quite selfish a little bit because, you know, I'm interested in the history in this way, in this kind of progressive or linear way. I'm interested in seeing these changes. So, you know, I might in 10 or 20 or 30 years look back and say, gosh, that was self-indulgent. Who knows? You know, right now, no one else wants to do this work. So I'm like, cool, I'll do it. And of course, I bounce these ideas off my supervisor and I bounce them off the curator. Like, I'm not just kind of free for all rolling down the hill with my ideas, but I'm trying to be reflexive and consider the decisions I'm making and make them not passively, but actively, so that I can also kind of feel confident in them, but also that if anyone ever asks me, I can be like, no, there's a good reason that it's done this way. So, I don't know if this is actually that relevant to your work, but I imagine it's something that you probably do get asked considering both the location and the chronology of the collection you're working with. But do you find sort of an intersection between what you're looking at and the history of apartheid, the history of race in South Africa? So, I mean, it permeates, right? If you do any research in any field on the history of South Africa, there's always going to be the influence of apartheid. It's just that it, it's a fundamental reality of that time period. What's interesting about the collection, I mean, there's various things, but in terms of kind of race and gender and discrepancies and so on. So number one, it kind of spans beyond apartheid, right? So apartheid was implemented in 1948, and this material starts in the 1920s with some older stuff. So it kind of also spans what sometimes is referred to the kind of petty apartheid era in which ideas about racial segregation were already being implemented, but they weren't institutionalized in the way that apartheid kind of literally passed acts and bills to explicitly segregate individuals in every part of life. So it, everything was segregated by law. In the pre-apartheid era, 
there were these kind of common sense acts of segregation that weren't necessarily written down or legally kind of implemented. It wasn't kind of passed down by the state. And yet there were these kinds of everyday de facto acts of segregation that happened in hospitals, in prisons, in housing areas, in schools, etc. So it's very much a kind of prevalent part of this history. What is interesting about the photographs. For me, as a South African, and being very intimately kind of connected to this history, and it's still very much a lived experience today as well, is that it is actually incredibly difficult to identify the kind of divisions between racial groups that apartheid so desperately tried to cement and set in stone. So in 1950 in particular, the apartheid government passed the Population Registration Act, where everyone had to have an ID book that explicitly stated what racial category they were in. And at the time, there were various racial categories with white or non-European, coloured, which was then and it still is now a term basically used for mixed race or those with indigenous ancestry from the South African area, and then black or African or, or other racialized terms to refer to black African people of South Africa, the Koza, the Zulu, and various other kind of groupings and ethnic groupings in this country were kind of squished together under this racial terminology. And what is interesting is that hospitals, even before apartheid, would note very clearly in their ledgers. So what racial group is this person in? What gender are they? Or what is their sex, rather? And then, of course, general information about their symptoms and their name and their address and their contact details and so on. The photographs have a lot of information on the back of them. They're mounted on cardboard. Very often, the name of the patient is there, the age of the patient is there, the diagnosis, sometimes some other erroneous details. The one thing that is practically never mentioned is race. There's maybe three out of 5,000 cards where you'll see a little CF, which is supposed to stand for colored female, or NM, which is supposed to stand for native male. But it literally happens less than a handful of times. So it feels to me like the assumption is that, well, we can see the race of the patient, right? We don't need it to be identified on paper. We don't need to write it down because the photograph reveals all as the supposedly objective neutral record, surely we can see what racial group this individual belongs to. And for me, the great irony is that it is incredibly difficult. These are black and white photographs, and it is so vague that I have not even tried to add race as a kind of category to my own archival practice, because I just throw up my hands and be like, I don't know. I don't know what if I had to kind of project this apartheid categorical lens onto the subject, I couldn't do it. And it's not even because I'm just generally opposed to the idea of compartmentalizing people into racial categories because they are social constructs. It's just, it's actually not possible to do it. So this whole idea that we can identify race as a kind of biological inevitability or biological kind of standard and that we can differentiate in such a clear-cut way as, for instance, the apartheid state, you know, it assumed and attempted to implement. 
it just highlights the kind of ambiguous, messy nature of human beings and how artificial the idea of the racial category actually is. So, so for me, that's one of the kind of really interesting kind of counter intuitive aspects about the collection. Having said all that, the majority of the collection does come from a hospital, one hospital in particular, the Grootskier Hospital. Your listeners might know it because Christian Barnard did the first heart transplant at this hospital in the 60s. And the thing about the hospital, this hospital in particular, is that while in general hospitals were segregated in the 20th century, throughout the 20th century, even the end of the 19th century, there was a lot of kind of discussions about how patients need to be kept apart, not only along class lines or keeping men from women, but also along lines of race. It's a very, very messy discussion because often you can't do all three of those things considering the limited space of an institution. So that also presents some interesting kind of administrative problems when you start throwing race into the mix. But this hospital, Kreskia Hospital, it was built in 1938, so 10 years before the implementation of apartheid. But it was designed to explicitly segregate quote-unquote Europeans from quote-unquote non-Europeans. And it was built in such a way that literally the European wards were mirrored. There was like a literal mirror image of the European wards on the one side and the non-European wards on the other side. And there was not supposed to be patient crossover between. Even the casualty operating theatres, there was one for Europeans and one for non-Europeans. So there was this very kind of almost down the middle, explicit division of race, literally built into the foundations of this hospital. So it's supposed to be kind of equally divided. But if you read the history of the hospital, there were often empty beds on the European side and it was overcrowded on the non-European side. That was more later into like the 60s and the 70s when there was a shift so there was this kind of boom in research at Rotskia Hospital. And you had a lot of kind of well-off white patients go and seek care there because, you know, it was this great institution. And then slowly that started to peter off. There was a kind of move towards seeing private doctors rather than going to a general hospital. And, of course, to seek private care, you need money to do that, whereas the, the general hospital, it was a public hospital, and so if you didn't have any money, you could still go. And of course, the racial and class discrepancies meant that the majority of white people in Cape Town could seek private care, whereas the majority of people of colour could not afford that kind of care. So the hospital was always their go-to. If you read the history of the medical school and the hospital, there are these incredibly derogatory comments about the non-European wards, especially related to conspicuous diseases. This one ex-head of surgery, he wrote a lot of histories of medicine, very kind of institutional, like, oh, our great medicine here in South Africa, that kind of histories of great men kind of histories. And he wrote about how, for instance, European doctors would come and visit the hospital, and this was in the 50s in particular, and how they would be awestruck 
by how extreme the symptoms of certain conspicuous diseases were in the non-European wards in a way that it hadn't been like this in Europe since the discovery of penicillin. So this idea of this kind of backwardsness, this extreme forms of illness in a particular racial group, you get that in the writings about the hospital and the writings about the patients. I am not finding that discrepancy in the photographs that I'm looking at. And I think the reason is that the collection kind of peters out into the 60s. So when this kind of overcrowding in the one side and the kind of exodus of white patients from the hospital was starting to happen. So it's still pretty much in terms of, again, if I had to come to a line in the sand, it feels like the photographs are very representative of the racial groups that were in the hospital. So it kind of feels like a 50-50 split, but again, no guillotining here in terms of who belongs to what category. But what is interesting is, for instance, this is something that one sees sporadically with European collections and also American collections of clinical photographs, is that sometimes patients were given a kind of shawl or something to cover their face while they were actually photographed. So they would be in the photographic studio. I mean, there's various instances, one in which someone literally has this kind of little white bag over their head. There's another odd one where someone actually has like glasses cut out of black paper, but it looks like sunglasses and it's kind of been plunked onto her face. And there's another one where it looks like a nurse is actually standing behind the patient and is kind of putting her hand over the patient's face to disguise the identity. There's another one where it looks like the doctor who was taking care of that patient is actually in the room. You see his kind of tweed jacket and his buttoned up shirt and so on. And he's actually holding this strange dark wooden thing with a string attached to it in front of his patient's face while the photographer takes the image. So these moments of like censorship, right? So in order to protect the patient's identity, not happening in the darkroom or in publication process, but in the studio itself. But the only individuals who seem to have been granted that opportunity are white women. So as a clinical collection, There's a significant amount of nudity. It appears that men are not being given that kind of consideration. Sometimes they're images of men who themselves kind of pull their shirts or pull a cloth over their genital area if they are showing, for instance, their leg or their thigh or those areas. So that's men in general. With women of colour, I have yet to see the consideration of covering the face being taken in the studio. So that's there for me is quite a significant difference there. And and it could be, I mean, it could come from various places. For instance, Carly Darkin, who has written about the Wellcome Trust's collection of uh, clinical photographs, has spoken about how there's uh, very much a class divide, right? If you were impoverished, very often the photographer or the doctor wouldn't kind of consider safeguarding your appearance. There was a lot of ideas about, you know, if you think about gentility and the, the kind of care about your public appearance and who knows that you're ill, etc, etc. Like there's a lot of, like where's the working class were given that consideration, right? They were treated as second class citizens. And it feels to me that that can also be transposed to the South African context. If we're thinking about who kind of 
deserves to have the opportunity to say that they want to have their face covered. So that would be my kind of gut instinct. But there are also other forms of bias that could be at work here in that, for instance, it was very common, for instance, to see a bare-chested woman if you were to go into more rural areas of the country or if you were to visit a neighboring country like Namibia, for instance, that quite often people would kind of go on tours into the central parts of the country, and I'm talking like in the 40s and 50s, and you would pose, you as this kind of white tourist would pose with these bare-breasted black women, this kind of horrible ethnic tourism thing that was happening. And to a large extent, if you look at picture postcards of South Africa today, it it continues to happen, right? This essentializing of certain cultural groups and often nudity, being associated with tradition, being associated with backwardsness, being associated with tribal, etc. All of those associations. And so while the kind of class to race transposition of oh, you know, you, you, why should we bother asking you whether you want your face covered? You're, you're a lesser human, right? You're, you're a second-class citizen. There might also be just a bias of, oh, but black women don't mind showing their breasts, right? Like, that could be a kind of inherent... And that's no better, don't get me wrong. That is not, <laughs> that's not an excuse. But I wonder how much of it is this kind of deliberate animosity versus how much of it is just a, oh, you know, they don't care. Like, it's not a big deal. The other thing that I was thinking of is just that if it's white women, but it's not all white women in the collection who are having their faces covered, could we be talking about married white women whose husbands wanted that, for example? That's totally possible. I wonder because, I mean, this is quite deep into the 20th century, right? Specifically, the ones I'm thinking about are like 40s, 50s. And so what I've noticed now that I actually bring it up, that a lot of the women are actually older, the ones who have their faces covered. Mm. It's often also cases of breast cancer. So quite often there's a combination of nudity involved in terms of exposing the, the female breast. But also, if you read Zontag's illnesses metaphor, she describes how, for instance, breast cancer, or cancer in general, but breast cancer in particular, at the time of her writing, which is in the 60s, is a highly, highly stigmatized disease, right? There's no compassion. All the, oh, you've got cancer, where is it? Oh, you've got cancer, what did you do that made you get it? It's this kind of mythologized illness that, like, yeah, that is highly kind of gendered and highly stigmatized. And so I also wonder in terms of the combination, not necessarily of class or age, but perhaps that there's a recognition that this is a particular form of disease that individuals might not want to be associated with. And of course, by the time the a photographer becomes involved, the progression of the disease is to such an extent that the symptoms are extreme and overt. And I'm just thinking about kind of discussions today about uh, breast cancer awareness and women who are choosing to have uh, mastectomies and who are choosing to either not have reconstructive surgery or have reconstructive surgery. It's like all of these kinds of questions about how do we think about the breast in relation to breast cancer and illness and femininity and female sexuality, etc. And I'm also wondering if it's possible that, that the idea of womanhood is so entangled with the breast 
if there isn't potentially something that, you know, if something happens with my breasts, if this is essentially my womanhood, it's the source of my sexual allure, it's the source of nourishment for my offspring, it has all these kinds of connotations attached to it. And I wonder if there's also, you know, we always think about the face as the kind of seat of identity, but I also wonder how much certain bodily regions play into that, especially when we're thinking about disease and when we're thinking about illness and when we're thinking about the body going awry in very conspicuous ways. So those are all kinds of questions I've been going through my head so you can see why this can I mean this research can just go on I could be working on this for like the rest of my life there's so many little threads that I'd love to just keep writing about so this has been extremely fascinating we usually ask our guests if they can share something a bit funny or or light-hearted from their research? Right. So, I mean, the only lighthearted thing I can really think of, considering that I'm kind of staring at pathology and you know, all day long, I guess the, the two things maybe more irony than humor, I suppose. Well, the, the humorous part is what we've already discussed. Like, I get to sit in a mortuary block, um, which is a quite a a talking point for any and all Zoom meetings. My supervisor actually once asked me whether the background was real because he thought it was a a picture, just, you know, one of those like Zoom backgrounds that you can fill in, which I found quite, quite amusing. So that's the, yeah, my location, I suppose, is the one kind of little bit of morbid humor ever present in my research. And I guess one of the other things that I found quite humorous, but I'm not entirely sure it communicates very well, is last semester I was teaching a fantastic course by Pratik Chakrabarti in our department, the Center for the History of Science, Technology and Medicine. And it was on pandemics, epidemics and pandemics and from cholera to COVID. So what I was doing to kind of prepare myself while I was busy archiving all these photographs is I would listen to podcasts and I would listen to kind of videos that were discussing pandemics. So basically, in my mind, what I was doing is I was sitting in the middle of a pandemic of COVID-19, working through photographs that display conspicuous symptoms of illness while listening to podcasts about disease. So it was kind of this trifecta of how much illness can one human take (laughs) and can one psyche kind of take over the course of three months? You know, that was for me just one of those when it was just one of those things that kind of came together all at the same time, which was quite amusing to me. Again, not particularly humorous, but I was amused by it, I suppose. (laughs) I guess you could be also playing Pandemic. Oh, yes, I could totally have added that. (laughs) Yeah, that would require a significant amount of multitasking. Michaela, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'm pretty sure I could have talked to you for another hour. So something that I'd like to plug is that I don't know if this episode's going to come out before this, but Michaela's going to be talking at an event for us in March. Is that right? No, February. February. I think it's the 24th. 
February 24th. So if you want to find out more about this, you can follow at PhotoResearchNet. That's at Photo, R-S-C-H-N-E-T on Twitter. We'll be promoting it, but Michaela's going to be giving a talk for the Network for Developing Photographic Research. Michaela, I don't know if there's anything else you've got coming up that you'd like our listeners to know about. No, no, it's just me sitting and doing my PhD research, (laughs) as one does. But yeah, thank you, Jojo, so much for this invitation. Thank you, Anna. Uh, So yeah, Anna, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'm so sorry about my internet breaking up. It's really misbehaving this morning. I just kept looking down at your Zoom picture and being like, is Anna really, really engaged in what Michaela's saying right now? Or has she frozen? I was engaged, I promise. And thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in again to Not Safe for Publication. As always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.